Thank you, Trevor. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 23 this morning as we take a look at a very important chapter of Scripture. Jesus is on the Temple Mount in his last week on earth in this life before he dies for the sins of the world. And Matthew 23 is going to record his last sermon on the Temple Mount. He's been, Matthew has been recording for us what's been going on on Wednesday. Um, after chapter 23, we're going to move to the Olivet Discourse, and Jesus is going to go out of the temple area not to return again. And so we come to a chapter that really is like none other in all the Gospels. Jesus is going to denounce with the severest of language the Pharisees and their hypocrisy. That's really going to pick up in verse 13, which we're going to look at next week. This introductory section, verses 1 to 12, is actually, that we're looking at today, is actually an address to the disciples and the crowds. And it is a warning. It is a serious warning. Jesus is our great and good shepherd. And part of that is that he warns his people. He warns them, just like a a shepherd takes care of the sheep and keeps them from things that are harmful, takes them to green pastures and still waters and shepherds them away, and if needfully, with, with great urgency from poisonous water and poisonous plants. Jesus is going to give the sheep here a very important warning. He warns us against false teaching, false prophets, and false religion. So also, Jesus does this and is a model for all shepherds, all pastors, who should be warning their people against spiritual danger. Warning is part and parcel with the ministry. Jesus warns us in Matthew 24, 24. He says this, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. I can just hear the liberals now, oh, whining. Oh, that's so negative. Jesus is concerned with your spiritual well-being, your very salvation. Paul warned the churches of Galatia, that accursed men would enter the church and preach a false gospel, Galatians 1.8. Cursed men is what he called them, accursed. Paul warned Timothy that false Christians would join the church and promote demonic doctrines. You know, and people just don't want to hear that. They want to hear, well, we have a different point of view. Paul says it's demonic. Paul said it. I didn't say it. I'm just telling you what Paul said. I'm just reading you the Bible. Peter warned the church that false teachers would infiltrate the church, teaching false doctrine that would destroy men's souls. Oh, well, you know, so-and-so teaches, and we can kind of just pick and choose the good stuff from the bad stuff. That's not the view of the apostles. That their good teaching outweighs their bad. 
John warned the church that false teachers whom he called antichrists would make their way into the church and deny that Jesus is the Christ. How about calling out someone who teaches wrong doctrine as an antichrist? Friends, this is the warning of Jesus and his apostles. The apostle Paul in a heartfelt speech, farewell speech to the elders at Ephesus. You remember the story in his third missionary journey as he's heading back to Jerusalem and he's hastening to be there for Pentecost. He land, the ship lands at Miletus and he sends messengers to Ephesus to call for the elders. Church that he had invested much time in, in many tears and many sermons. He calls them to warn them. He warns the elders of Ephesus with tears in his eyes. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. From among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Acts chapter 20. Since Jesus and the apostles have founded the church, there have been false teachers that infiltrate it and attack it from the time of its inception until today. So it's, a, it's of the highest importance that the church is warned against false teaching. And of course, false teachers abound today, just as they have through the whole history of the church. False teachers that deny the Lord Jesus Christ deny his deity. More popularly, they deny the authority of Scripture, changing it, twisting it as suits their, their own ends, teaching fanciful things, adding things to Scripture, speculations. False teachers peddle a false gospel also that is almost always a version of adding works to faith. They nullify the grace of God in salvation. Paul battled this in, with the churches of Galatia, and he chose the strongest words when he wrote to them. He says in Galatians 5.2, Look, I, Paul, say to you, so that if you accept, accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. The false teaching in Galatia was that you need Jesus, plus you must keep the Old Testament law. Paul says this about that. He says in Galatians 5.4, You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. That, friends, is a warning. A warning that looks out for the very salvation of your soul. Why is this so important? Because false teaching and false teachers lead people to hell. This is why Jesus reserves his harshest words in all of the Gospel of Matthew for those who keep people out of heaven. I mentioned verse 13. We start that, that next section next week, and he said this in verse 13, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. We, when we see spiritual or religious hypocrites... We turns our stomach, right? Amen? We see them in the news. We see that they've fallen, massively fallen. Immorality. Unspeakable acts. 
But the greatest problem is not their inconsistency. It's the effect it has on the people that they have impacted, who they are leading with them to hell. Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Friends, Jesus was upset about false teaching. He was not happy with a false gospel. Religious leaders who actually prevent people from entering the kingdom come under the harshest rebuke of the Lord Jesus Christ. No one gets it more severely than those who represent God and are supposed to be ushering people into the kingdom and they're shutting the door by their hypocrisy and by their legalism and by their false gospel and by whatever else they teach. J.C. Ryle said this, No sins are so sinful as theirs in the sight of Christ. No sin that a man could commit is as sinful to God as that of religious hypocrisy by religious leaders. In our text, verses 1 to 12, Jesus warns his disciples and the crowds to not follow the damning religious example of the Pharisees who are characterized by prideful self-promotion, but instead his followers are to choose humble service. So we'll see this morning in our text, in those 12 verses, in verses 1 to 7, the, the mark of a false spiritual leader, which is hypocrisy. And then we'll see three characteristics of that. And number two, we'll see the mark of Christ's followers, which is humility. And lastly, we'll see the reward of Christ's followers, which is heaven. So look with me, if you would, Matthew 23, the first 12 verses. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their philatrices broad and their fringes long. And they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus is giving a warning. He addresses his, his statements to the crowds and to his disciples. And as I mentioned, it is very strong language. First, he wants to capture the attention of his people and point them to the type of life they should be living. He is warning them not to adopt the superficial hypocritical religious approach that so characterizes the Pharisees. 
He's addressing the disciple and the crowds. Throughout his ministry, the masses of people did not follow him as committed disciples, but they listened to him. They were glad to hear him and see him perform a miracle or provide lunch. No doubt many in the crowds would believe in him after his death and resurrection from the dead. And here in our story, it is the large crowds who have come to Jerusalem for the Passover. And he notes there in verse 2 that the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. This refers to the teaching office that the scribes and the Pharisees occupy. It was passed down through generations um, in, the, uh, in Israel, and the Pharisees and scribes laid claim to it. Moses, of course, was their great lawgiver, so to sit in Moses' seat means that they are the legal successors to Moses and wield the authority that comes with that position. But Jesus will point out shortly that they have forfeited whatever credibility they may have had because of their hypocrisy. And so with this great responsibility that they gladly took on themselves, now Jesus holds them to great accountability. And he says, so do and observe whatever they tell you. Now this is a greatly de- debated phrase among scholars. Um, it's, it's, it's difficult. So do and observe what they tell you. Because Moses was God's ordained leader, the position occupied in succession to the Pharisees is to be respected, is what I believe he's saying here. Even if they do not live according to what they teach, they are in the position of God's spokesman for Israel. Remember, we're on the other side of the cross still. Jesus hasn't fully fulfilled everything yet. He's, until he dies and raises from the dead, they are to still take heed to all of the Old Testament. Therefore, the people of Israel are to obey what comes from the teaching of Moses' seat, so to speak. But I believe what Jesus is saying here, some, some people think it's irony, like sharp irony, like he really means the opposite of what he's saying, but I don't think that's it. I think what Jesus means here is insofar as these men who sit in a legitimate seat of authority, who are bringing the Old Testament law to you, Insofar as they teach and proclaim the Word of God, you are to do it. You are to obey it. But not the works they do, for they preach and do not practice. Jesus teaches that the people are responsible and accountable to obey the Word of God, but He warns them, don't live like they do. Don't follow their poor example. The disciples of Jesus are to take care, them and us, that we do not model their hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is the defining characteristic of false teachers. They preach, but they, verse 3, they preach, but they do not practice. This is the overarching characteristic of what we're going to look at today, these false teachers. And so in verses 4, 5, and 6, following here, verse 3, we're going to see their unbiblical standard, We're going to see their false spirituality, and we're going to see their pride. These are three characteristics of the hypocrisy of the false teachers. So verse 4, they they put on the people an unbiblical 
standard. Jesus says they tie up heavy burdens. The, the picture is of a, uh, there's a couple of pictures here in the, in the first century, it would be a, a, an animal that's carrying a load for a merchant. And instead of spending a little extra money and getting a second animal, he overloads the animal. He just burdens the poor donkey. And uh, the, the, the load is uneven, and so it's wearing, and it's hard, and it's breaking the animal down, and he's straining under the burden, and the merchant is carrying absolutely nothing, just whipping the donkey along. The other one would be of a Roman soldier who had the right to stop any person and unload his pack and have them carry it um, for, uh, for, for a set amount of distance. Um, and it wouldn't, wouldn't matter if you had a bad back or you were old or bad knees, they didn't care. You were under, by, by Roman law, you were obligated to carry that pack. Jesus means that the burden of the traditions, the many, many additions of the law that the scribes and Pharisees and the rabbis came up with, this is the, the burden that is too heavy to bear. It's not the Old Testament. It's the hedge that they put around the law. It's the minute details of ritual cleansing and many, many, many other things. The average person who worked 40 hours a week, so to speak, wouldn't be able to dedicate that much attention to the requirements, the burden of the scribes and Pharisees, the tradition of the rabbis, they just wouldn't be able to do it, and so therefore would be ritually, perpetually ritually unclean. In their eyes, you would be definitely someone who wasn't honoring God because they tied up these heavy burdens. They obligated the people to keep them, but they did nothing to help them. They themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They would not make the smallest effort to help the people, to relieve them of this burden. They were unrealistic religious expectations based on unbiblical standards. Leon Morris points this out. He says, The system put in place by the Pharisees was a series of regulations that were intended to help people along the way to a godly life. However, the keeping of the regulations became an ends in themselves, and the whole system quickly deteriorated into legal, to a legalistic structure. So instead of helping people to godliness, those who observed the law, like the Pharisees themselves, became legalists. And so we could pull over here and make some application. The church is not immune to unbiblical standards. If we're not careful, we can adopt extra-biblical regulations in attempt to regulate holiness. This happens when we set a minimum length for women's skirts, when the church publishes approved lists of music, movies, and books, or when the church requires mandatory attendance of all activities, or, of course, when you enact a strict no-drinking policy. Such standards have the intent of helping members in their pursuit of holiness, but the practical effect is a sharp turn into legalism, fundamentalism, and a joyless spirit of policing policies rather than living in the grace of Christ and loving Him. And so, 
unbiblical standards don't help us to love God back to what we started with this morning with all of our hearts. What motivates your obedience to Christ, not rules and regulations, is the love of Christ. So we stick to biblical standards. What does the Bible say about how we are to live? So the first characteristic of these hypocritical leaders was unbiblical standards. They had added to God's law. Secondly, they practiced a false spirituality. Verse 5, they do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their flatteries broad and their fringes long. Their supposed spirituality was all for show. They're not motivated by love for God, or they are are motivated by love for self and the adoration and the accolades that people would heap upon them. Flatulary, excuse me, are a small box, small leather box containing verses of Scripture that were worn on the forehead and on the arm. They were secured by leather straps. Orthodox Jews use them today. You may have visited Israel yourself or, or seen pictures um, of them praying, Orthodox Jews praying at the Wailing Wall, the Western Wall in Jerusalem, at the Temple Mount. Uh, you may have seen these um, men wearing these along with a prayer shawl. Um, this, the, this wearing of these things, they, the little boxes contain Scripture, and they contain the Scriptures that spoke of you are to have these things upon yourself. Um, Exodus 13, Deuteronomy 6, and Deuteronomy 11. Let me read you from Deuteronomy 6, a passage I'm pretty sure you're familiar with, and I'll explain where they, where they went off on wearing these things. Deuteronomy 6, 4-8, the Lord says, Hero is a great Shema. Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. These words that I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Deuteronomy 6.8. That's where they get this. Um, putting the Word of God in a leather box and then wrapping it on their head as well as on their arm. Now, clearly, I believe what the Lord is telling Israel here, and tells us as well, is you are to keep the Lord's Word always before you. You are to be in the Word of God. You are to write it down. If you don't have a, they didn't have a Bible, so they had to write it down themselves. Um, You're to meditate upon it. You're to think about it through the day, not just in the morning, but in the evening as well. You should always keep it before you, and I believe that this is figurative language, not a literal command to tie something to your head, because you can't see it when it's tied to your forehead, unless you're reading backwards in a mirror. Um, Interestingly, archaeologists have discovered phylacteries in the caves of uh, above the Dead Seas there at Qumran, and they were exactly these types of leather boxes worn on the head and on the arm, and notably... The boxes that were found had significant variation in sizes. So they all weren't just one tiny size. There were some that were larger than others. 
And so in verse 5, when Jesus says they make their phylacteries broad, it means that the rectangle box that some people wore on their forehead stretched all the way across their face so that it would be more prominent. He also makes mention here in verse 5 of they make their fringes long. This comes directly from Numbers 15, where the Lord instructs Israel to put a tassel, or tassels plural, on their clothes. They're to sew a tassel, and that tassel is to be blue or have a blue thread in it. Very simply, the children of Israel were to have a blue tassel on their clothing to remind them to be holy that they were different, that they were set apart. And this was a visual reminder that they were to be a holy people. And so the, the intention of it was that it was for the wearer to be reminded, I belong to the Lord. You'd see that blue tassel, you know, would be on the exterior of your clothing, no doubt, and it would just be a reminder to live your life for God. Well, This was corrupted, of course, into these fringes being put on prayer shawls. So now you have a shawl that goes over it, and Orthodox Jews dress in black, so they they have a a prayer shawl with the blue tassel on it. And some men made those tassels extremely long as as a statement which reverses the intention of it to tell others, I'm so holy. See how long my tassel is. It means that I am... Doubly committed, I guess, doubly committed to God. Um, And so these things end up, of course, being signs of false spirituality. Men who claim to speak for God, men who fancy themselves as instructors of the truth, men who are even gifted and put on a good show, but ultimately their spirituality is insincere. Jude says in Jude 17 to 19, But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. And that, friends, is the key. False teachers are devoid of the Spirit. They do not have the Holy Spirit of God. Their spirituality is all for show. If we were to pull over for a little application here, we'd have to look squarely at pastors. As the religious leaders were putting on a show here in Jesus' name with false spirituality, pastors are tempted to love and live for the praises of men. The difference is genuine men of God don't. Temptation comes to everybody. Everybody likes to be thought well of. Everybody likes to receive the praises of men. But when temptation comes to be disingenuous, to put on a spiritual show, so to speak, make your tassels long and your box on your forehead big, remember 1 Corinthians 10.13, no temptation has overcome you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. 
to resist temptation in the power of the Holy Spirit and live for the glory of God is the privilege of every pastor, every believer who is in Christ. And another temptation is to live for your own glory, to live for the praises of men, to live for what attention you can get by your service in the church, to display your piety by enlarging your phylacteries and your tassels represents religious self-promotion, self-glorification. Jesus said this in the Sermon on the Mount. He said in Matthew 5.16, In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. There is a way in which you and I are to be a witness to the watching world. We are to be a light for Christ to others by your life, by your actions that glorify God. But they're not to be done for others so that they will see they're to be done for the glory of God. And then people will see at some point. Some good questions to ask ourselves are, am I content if no one sees me? Am I satisfied to serve the body of Christ if no one recognizes me? Jesus warns us also in the Sermon on the Mount not to live for the attention of others. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For if you do, you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. People will see us, but we need to be living for Christ and His glory, His approval, not the attention of others. And the difference is where? Right in here. The difference is in your heart. That you're doing it. And and by the way, if I could just make another qualification, don't get lost. That's no excuse not to serve the Lord. I've had people tell me over the years, oh, I can't do that because... Someone would see me doing it and think I was doing it for vainglory. I'm like, no, no, no. You got that all wrong. <laughs> you serve the Lord. You serve Him with a joyful heart, with a happy heart. You give glory to God. And if someone sees you, praise the Lord. They see you serving. That's great. But you're not doing it so that they will see you. You're just doing it because you're being faithful. Live for Christ. Philippians 1.27, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Paul says. So we're to live in such a way as to gain a good reputation. Not so others will see us, but live your life in such a way that you are living it worthy of the gospel of Christ. Christ has saved you. Now live a life that avoids sin and honors Him. And you will give glory to Him. And when people do see you, you won't even be worried about it because you're worried about honoring the Lord. And they will give glory to God. Paul encouraged the Philippian church to live in exactly that way. We're to practice our faith and our religion for the glory of God alone, and other people will see it. That's true spirituality. The Pharisees practiced false spirituality. They put on biblical standards on other people. They did nothing to help them. They practice a false spirituality for the praises of men. And lastly, they, the third characteristic of hypocritical false teachers is they were motivated by pride. 
verses 6 and 7, they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. Place of honor at feasts was the, the Roman way of laying out the, the, the couches, really, is what they were, in a U-shape, and you dined with your left elbow as you laid prone and you ate with the right hand, propped yourself up with the left elbow. Um, the chief place was at the center, at the head of the table, at the head of the, the U, so to speak, and that's where the host would sit. And then the place of honor would be right next to him. Well, that's where the Pharisees loved to sit. They loved to sit right at the head of the table, right next to the host. And then everyone was seated in decreasing order of importance. And they loved the chief seats in the synagogue. Chief seats were, uh, like many churches do today, they'll have a a raised platform like this, and then there'll be some, some chairs that face out. So they'll have chairs there, and of course, sometimes they're ornate, sometimes they're really big, and you just wonder, what, what are they thinking when they put the, the big thrones up there? And then the, the, the pastor or the elders or, or visiting preachers sit in those chairs facing the congregation. Um, we don't do that here at Teton Valley Bible Church. I like to sit down here with all of you, because I'm just one of the people uh, who God has called to come and preach, so... But that's the chief seats. They were the places of prestige, prominence, and importance in the eyes of the people. And so they didn't just, they, they loved those seats. They loved to sit where they could be noticed. And they loved greetings in the marketplace. They liked to be called rabbi in the marketplace. That's a little confusing because rabbi means teacher. Um, But what they liked was they liked being greeted as rabbi. It meant more than just teacher. Culturally, it meant that you were someone of high honor. Uh, And so they loved it when people would say, Oh, welcome, rabbi. So good to see you, rabbi. Um, It was an open recognition of the status of a man who was regarded to be an outstanding teacher of the law. So the Pharisees were devoid of humility. They were preoccupied with pride, pride of place, pride of position. Their pride blinded them and gave them an over-exalted sense of their own importance. And this is exactly what pride will do to us. Pastors are especially susceptible to thinking that they're more important than they really are. They're tempted to pursue the gratification of their own glory rather than the glory of God. The job of the pastor is to point you to Christ, not to myself. Some churches even promote this ego by treating their pastors like celebrities not holding them accountable to the standards set forth in Scripture, not calling them to account when there are obvious manifestations of pride or even worse, blatant sin, they give them a pass. Christ calls His people, especially His under-shepherds, to humble service. We're going to get there in a minute, but He says in verse 11, the greatest among you shall be your servant. And He doesn't just say it, He demonstrates it, right? 
Jesus said in Mark 10, 45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. The God of glory, as we just celebrated at Christmas, comes down from heaven. That's the humbling of the Son of God. Coming down, leaving the glory of heaven to dwell among men. And then he humbles himself, according to Philippians, all the way even to death and death on a cross. Jesus sets the tone. Jesus sets the example. And then he calls his people, especially his leaders, to live humbly in humble service. God is, you know, sometimes we talk about sin. I said this last week. Sometimes we talk about sin as, well, I just need to do a little better. Don't ever think of sin as, oh, I just need to do a little better. Think of sin as complete rebellion against God. God is opposed to the proud. This is self-deception. Living in pride Living in pride of place, pride of possession, loving the praises of men in the chief seats, not checking your pride, and thinking that God is on your side. Well, guess what? You couldn't be more wrong. James 4, 6, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Until you're ready to humble yourself, the grace of God is withheld. God looks to the humble. Isaiah 66.2, write that down if you, if you don't know where it is in your Bible. Isaiah 66.2, but this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Humble service should mark Christ's people. We are children of the Father and we are to be marked by humble service. Andrew Murray said this, about humility. It's a wonderful quote. I'm going to read it to you. If humility is the root of the tree, its nature must be seen in every branch, leaf, and fruit. If it is the first, then all including grace of the life of Jesus, if it is the secret of his atonement, then the health and strength of our spiritual life will entirely depend on our putting this grace first also. We must make humility the chief thing we admire in him the chief thing we ask of him and the one thing for which we sacrifice all else. Isn't that beautiful? Andrew Murray says in a nice way, sell everything you have for humility. <laughs> Do whatever it takes to get on your face before God and confess your pride. Christ's true followers will be committed to humble service. Well, the three characteristics of hypocritical false teachers is unbiblical standards, false spirituality, and pride. And now number two, we're going to take a look at the mark of Christ's followers, which I've just spent a lot of time in, is humility. Verse eight, but you are not to be called rabbi, Jesus said. But is, is transitional in the text. Um, you are to be entirely different than, than these guys. This, this is contrast. These are contrasting now. Uh, I already mentioned you're not to be called rabbi. This is not a prohibition for Christians that you may never call another Christian teacher. Obviously, there are teachers in the church. It's one of the gifts listed in the book of Ephesians given to the church. But as I mentioned already, rabbi was used as, in an honorific sense 
Um, it is a way to honor someone and acknowledge in a way that they were among the elite. We're not to, we're not to seek that title for ourselves in that manner. Um, and that can happen today. You can want to be a teacher. You can want to be a PhD just for the sake of having a PhD, just for the sake of being a teacher, not because you have a desire to build up the body of Christ and you want to help people grow. Um, you can be motivated by either pride or humility. In Jesus' day, the rabbi, rabbis desired to be addressed in this manner to show that they stood over and above the regular people. That's the real rub. The children of God are not to seek prestigious titles, so to elevate themselves over their brothers and sisters. Because Jesus says in verse 8, you are all brothers. We do not stand above one another in Christ, but as equals in the family of God. So we are children of the Father. And this, that sibling thing kind of brings it all down to size, doesn't it? You, know, you see somebody great, maybe a sports figure, you know, there's playoff games going on this weekend, and you'll see, you see somebody walking through the tunnel or maybe out in the parking lot, and they're like, you know, they're parting the crowd for this person because he's so very important, you know, or whatever. And then, you know, the brother or sister comes up and, you know, says, hey, what's going on? Immediate access, right? And they're, they're not nearly as impressed as the rest of the world <laughs> by, their, by their sibling, you know. Um, we're all brothers and sisters. There's not anyone who should be lording it over anybody else. We are all children of the Father. We're all forgiven sinners and adopted into the family of God. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Though Jesus affirms we are to honor our earthly parents, our first and supreme loyalty is to be to our heavenly father. And there are many people, in fact, the, the, the Mormon church makes a huge point of this, to put family ties above everything else. In fact, baptism for the dead is a a pagan practice that they do that is designed to keep families in heaven together with them. It's a futile effort, but that's, that's why they do it. Jesus says this. Jesus clears all this up. The words of Jesus clear up so many wrong teachings. Matthew 10, 37, Jesus says, Whoever loves father more than... Father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He puts family in its right perspective. He said, you, spiritually speaking, you are in the family of God through faith in Christ. And now this is your eternal family, your brothers and sisters. And you are not to put any earthly family devotions or loyalties above devotion and loyalty to Christ. He says in verse 10, neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. Again, a similar point is made here for emphasis. God's children are not to seek prestigious titles for themselves in order to elevate themselves above other believers. Humility is to mark Christ's followers. Even the smartest and most learned are to ensure that they are not following the model of the Pharisees in prideful hypocrisy, because we are all children of the Father. And then he says in verse 11, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Through his public ministry, Jesus repeatedly taught that his, father, that his followers must be lowly. And of course, he set himself as the example. 
Jesus forsook the halls of greatness during his earthly ministry. He didn't cater to kings and queens. He didn't even spend, he didn't even go to the, the courts of the Sanhedrin until he was put on trial. If you think about being the Son of God come down and you're going to proclaim yourself to all the world and our fallen thinking, you and I would go exactly to those places, the, pe- the people of influence, the people who can give orders to the masses. Nope. Jesus spent much time in rural villages in Galilee and Judea. He said in Matthew 20, he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you shall be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Here in verses 11 and 12, Jesus notes again the theme of lowliness. His followers are to stand in contrast to the Pharisees. Their lives must be marked, and here's our application, be marked with a likeness to Christ. Turn with me, if you would, 2 Corinthians. Keep your finger there, Matthew 23, and we'll come back and finish up. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. What's the goal of your life right now? Let me write this down, maybe. Jot down this verse. Committed to memory. What do you, what do you live for? What, when you wake up, what is the highest value? What do you want to do today? What do you want to make sure you accomplish? Maybe you want to say something nice to somebody. Maybe you want to share the gospel. That would be good. Maybe you just don't want to lose your temper at your kids <laughs> before the sun goes down. But here's what the Word of God says. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Friends, I want to encourage you to make your life's goal further transformation into the image of Christ that you would behold the glory of the Lord. That's a whole other sermon in itself. But that would be your goal when you rise in the morning, is to see Christ and to be transformed all the more into His image. And that's God's will for your life and for mine. And this will come as we humble, humble ourselves before the Lord. So the mark of false spiritual leaders is hypocrisy. The mark of Christ's followers is to be humility. And the reward of Christ's followers is heaven. Look there at verse 12. Therefore, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. It is in giving service, not in receiving praise from men, that true greatness before God is found. Jesus explains there will be some reversals of what people imagine they had achieved. Those who have exalted themselves and achieved great things are going to be humbled at the end. And those who humbled themselves before the Lord, they will be 
exalted. Leon Morris said this, The disciples were accustomed to a society in which people like the Pharisees who exalted themselves were taught to be accepted taught certain things to be accepted by God as truly exalted ones. Thought certain to be accepted by God as truly exalted ones. Jesus reverses the cultural norms. Jesus says greatness is not exalting yourself. Greatness is found in humble service. This is the one who will enter in to eternal life with Christ. Jesus is looking for genuine lowliness. The attitude of the person who is not seeking personal gain of any sort, but simply the opportunity of doing service. And the reward is coming. Jesus will reward His humble servants with exalted positions in the kingdom. He gives us here a warning today. Do not follow the example of hypocritical religious leaders who exalt themselves. Rather, live as children of the Father, loving God, loving one another, humbly serving one another, and you will know joy and contentment in this life and great reward in the next. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that there is a great hope in your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name that we would walk closely with you, knowing what it means to serve you from the heart, not for the praises of men, being content with what you have given us in this world, seeking, Lord, to honor you in joyful, humble service. Father, we thank you that these things are all within reach for those who walk in your spirit, and those who have received the grace of Christ and salvation. And so we give you thanks, Father, and we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.